And there is an overarching question in this lesson I want to make sure we ask, and that is, how should we think or what should we do? So how should we think and then what should we do when we come across something in the Bible that seems wrong? Or it just seems like it's an error. It's out of it's completely out of line with something else we think. So, you know, how should we think and what should we do when we come across something in the Bible that just seems wrong? And, and so I just want you to keep that in your head. I mean, give you a little bit of context as we go through here, but we're going to come back to that question here in just a bit. But if you keep up with the reading plan, where we are this week is we're, we're in Matthew. Uh, we went from a lesson in Galatians last week. Uh, we quickly read James, and now we're in Matthew. So I'm going to skip right to Matthew. And just so you know some context on Matthew, uh, who do you think Matthew was primarily writing to? What type of audience would he be writing to? Jewish people, right? He'd be writing to Jewish people. And you're going to see that come loud and clear right through the very beginning as he starts talking about the genealogy of Jesus. Uh, he is he is coming right at the, at the front, making sure that these heroes of the faith of the Jewish people, David and Abraham, he's going to tie Jesus to them right off the bat. Right. And so he's being very, very purposeful of connecting the Old Testament prophecies and understandings to Jesus Christ. So we're going to see that come through here uh, in the story of Matthew. I want you to think about as you read Matthew, you're reading to a primarily Jewish audience who's trying to connect the entire thread of the Bible together. There's a little mini lesson in this genealogy in the very beginning here. So all we're going to cover today is the genealogy up front in Matthew, and I'm not even going to read it, right? It's, it's, you guys feel free to read it uh, anytime you want. It's not because I'm afraid to pronounce all the names. I could do it. I mean, I could, right? But but uh, but I'm not even going to read it. You want to prove? It? We'll do it after class. Yeah, you and I will read it together. <laughs> But there's a little mini lesson I wanted to have before I get into the main lesson of this because it's just interesting. So there are five women named in the genealogy here in Matthew, five women. And the five women, if I've got them underlined here, you've got Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba. She's the wife of Uriah. So they don't actually say Bathsheba. That's what they're saying, the wife of Uriah. And then Mary. And what I think is incredible about the fact that these women are mentioned at all, because it wasn't necessarily normal whenever Jewish people were tracing their ancestry, you know, to mention, you know, the women's names. But, but Matthew is very purposeful here about including these women in the story. And I love this for, for one main fact. If you were trying to convince people of your religion or trying to convince people to become Christians or, or to uh, make the best possible sales case for your worldview, your Christianity, you would not include the stories of these women in your story, right? If you're trying to convince people to follow Superman, you're not going to talk about all the bad things that's gone on in Superman's life, right? And so I, I get so much I don't know, confidence in my faith that the Bible is true, that it's authentic, because there are so many stories of people screwing up all throughout, right? Just absolute failure over and over again in the Bible. And even when we're talking about the one man in the Bible who was perfect, the one man who didn't break the law, who didn't sin, we're talking about Christ, we're going to learn about these people in his, in his ancestry that just, you know, not exactly the most, you know, incredible past, a very sordid past. And most of it has to do with sexual sin. So Tamar, you know, Tamar, uh, there in verse 3, it says, Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. So does anyone off the top of their head know what Tamar, the, the story of Tamar? Yeah. yeah. So, so, so you've got Judah, 
right? Who who's you know on a horse, as I recall, walking or a donkey going down the road, and uh, he sees this woman. <laughs> The prostitute, something happens there, and he has sex with her, and then has these these kids, you know. But it, it was actually his daughter-in-law, you know. That was a big scandal. But by the way, I mean, even kind of odd that he was even, you know, oh, she's a prostitute. Let me have sex. I mean, that's, it's it's a weird deal, right? And then there's all kinds of stuff that happens after that. But it's like, well, this isn't the most classy of our history, you know, in the Bible. And by the way, Judah, you know, comes from you know all it's just crazy. Then Rahab, and there's some debate about you know which Rahab this is. Uh, but, you know, a lot of people would say this Rahab would be the prostitute from the story in Jericho and all that. I would challenge that a little bit. The timeline doesn't add up quite as well. Uh, but you got an interesting story there. Ruth is a Moabite widowess, right? So, so I mean, it's, you know, just a different story there. She doesn't come from the Israelites. It's a lot of different things that went on in that path. She was accused, or, or she could have been accused of sexual sin with what was going on with her and Boaz, and Boaz was very careful to protect her from that. Uh, then the wife of Uriah, Bathsheba, you know, David, you know, had an affair with Bathsheba and then had her husband killed. You know, that's, that's an interesting deal. And then you get all the way to Mary, who obviously did not, you know, uh, there was no sexual sin in her life, but there was the allegation of it, right? So, so I, I just, it is incredible in this story as you trace back the ancestry, just the characters that are intentionally included uh, in the story of Christ. And if you get anything out of this lesson today, I think it's just, you know, uh, you heard Jeremiah talk about how he he never felt comfortable in the Christian setting and always felt like a third string Christian and and you know, thought he wasn't good enough and all this. And I just want us all to know you could be broken, you could have, you could have done things in your past, you could have had every sin we could imagine, and God can still use it and redeem you and, and use you in his story and transform your life. Um, just please never ever walk into this room or walk into this church and feel like that you're not good enough for God. Uh, there's a story of sexual sin and every type of sin you can imagine in the actual genealogy of Jesus Christ himself. So it's just a really, really interesting little mini lesson there. So uh, if I get off that mini lesson completely, though, I've got a question just for the whole group. How, how far back can you guys trace your ancestors? How many generations can you trace? Uh, 978. 978, that's a record. I can I, I can't go past my grandfather's right so it, it's so nine seventy eight wow that's impressive anyone can anyone beat nine seventy eight AD yeah you can go back to the Garden of Eden <laughs> Lee was beget by Joe who was beget by Scott who was beget he went all the way back to the Garden of Eden that's great can anyone else beat nine seventy eight AD Gene Gene's close. Aren't they? Yeah, Ancestry.com is actually doing a story on Gene's ancestry because they can trace back to Viking, like a, a Viking chiefs, right? Uh, or cool. We'll have to, whenever it comes out, we'll have to talk through. So just for you guys on Zoom, you know, Gene can trace his ancestor back to Vikings and his original ancestors actually planted churches all throughout uh, the region. I got well, that's cool. I mean, I, my, my dad and I are convinced, my dad's on Zoom, we're convinced that, you know, at some point in time, you know, the Baston family came from France, but we're more sure that, you know, some people who came up from the swamplands of Kentucky or something just robbed some Baston who came over on, a, uh, on, on, on you know, stole the name, started a bootlegging operation and, and moved on from there. But 
Um, you know, but it's, you know, it's fascinating. It, it's, you know, for the vast majority of us, we probably can't go back more than three or four generations. Now, Ancestry.com, some stuff has helped, you know, with that. But, but for most Americans, we can't really trace back that far. Like I, I can, I could get you to my great grandparents, but past that, I couldn't tell you names and, and, and everything. But and that's, that's, that's fairly normal. But that was not normal for the Jewish people. To this day, to this day, there's multiple organizations that the Jewish people use to trace their lineage all the way back to the original tribes of Israel. And so this idea of genealogy and ancestry and, and formal records and all that, that has been pervasive in the Jewish culture from the very beginning. Because think about, think about what they're coming from. They, they, they're the people of promise. Uh, their, their land allotments and their legal systems all were based on the tribal allocations, right? So much was, was tied into this idea of ancestry, handing down the promise and, and the way that people work, that this was ingrained in their culture from the very beginning. So a Jewish audience reading this genealogy would have completely understood it and would not have had any really question about the ability to trace back, you know, on, on a genealogy uh, as we went through this. So we've seen with, with Matthew, what he's doing here, though, is he's trying to make sure he ties Christ to two very important people, Abraham and David. In particular, he's trying to make sure that people see a clear connection to Jesus, to the Davidic covenant. And so why do you think it'd be, it'd be important for Jesus to be tied in the, in the royal line to the Davidic covenant? Any thoughts on that? I want to read, let me read you um, 2 Samuel. If you can turn your Bibles, 2 Samuel chapter 7. Um, what you'll see in there is this conversation that's going on between God and David, right? And David at this point in time is wanting to, uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7, and I'll, I'll, I'll tell you the verses here in a second, but uh, God's, or David's wanting to build the temple. You know, God's telling him, nope, it's not for you to build, by the way, but you are going to have a part in this. Solomon's going to be the one who builds the temple. Uh, and God makes a promise to David in that covenant that's really important. If you go to uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse, it's going to be in verse 11, about halfway through verse 11. God says this, he says, Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Right. So there was always this idea in the Jewish people that the Messiah would come from the line of David. Right. And the, the kingdom, the authority that God has promised uh, would be established absolutely forever. So, so Matthew is making a very clear assertion here. He's tying the royal line in this genealogy all the way back to David to show that we always said the Messiah would come from this line, and Jesus has come from this line. So that's why he's doing that. And then, you know, you think about the lesson for last week from Gene, where he's really talking about the original covenant of faith that started with Abraham and, and continued to tie back, you know, to Abraham as well. So that's the rationale for why Matthew is really getting into uh, this, you know, how he does the covenant or how he does the genealogy. There's some interesting things in how he does this. You see three consecutive sets of 14 generations uh, in, this, in this ancestry, and that's not a coincidence. I think Matthew's done that on purpose. Uh, there are, you know, 14 generations from Abraham to David, 
uh, 14 from David to the exile, 14 from the exile coming back uh, to the time of Christ. And there were definitely more than 14 generations at times in this genealogy. So especially from Abraham to David, there's going to be more than 14 generations actually occurring. But the way the Jewish people would do this, they never required every single generation to be listed for an official uh, genealogy. So that would have been a normal way for them to do it. But the, the number 14 is significant. And what people believe the 14 represented is this kind of play on the Hebrew numerical system for David. So uh, David's name, based on the, new, the numbers listed with the Hebrew alphabet, would actually add up to 14. And so it's just kind of a play. Matthew's getting, you know, kind of intentional, making sure they really read through the fact that Jesus is tied as the Messiah in the line of David, uh, connecting all the prophecies. Like I said, all Matthew's trying to do is connect the Old Testament prophecies to Jesus himself in the royal line. So my big thing, though, I think that's all interesting. It's good stuff for us to know. We need to know it. We need to know that Jesus is tied to the line of David, all that good stuff. But the thing that really hit me, you know, most, you know, most as I was going through and researching all of this was as soon as I read this genealogy, you know, I'm going back and like, all right, where else is the genealogy? And I go and I read the genealogy in Luke. And so if you take your Bibles for just a second and you go over to Luke chapter three, Matthew, Mark, Luke, go to chapter three, verses 23 through 38, you're going to find yet another genealogy probably written not too long after Matthew. I'm not quite sure how many years had passed, but it wouldn't have been a, a ridiculously long amount of time after Matthew had recorded his genealogy. So what do you immediately notice? If you just have both of the genealogies side by side, what do you immediately notice between the two genealogies? It goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. It goes all the way yeah. back to Adam. So Luke, Luke goes all the way to Adam. He actually goes all the way to God, God the Father, right? He goes, you know, Adam, son of God, right? Well, so, yep. Yeah. So that's another good observation. And it's good. Like I said, let's do observations here. So all the way back to Adam, they're in reverse order. He starts with Jesus and works backwards as opposed to starting with Abraham and going forward. Yep. And that's, and that's a, that's an interesting, we'll talk about that in a second. Yep. Doesn't bring in that the same distinctions that Matthew was doing. I don't think there are women in Luke. Are there? Yeah, I don't think there's any. As Kyle was saying, there's no women listed in Luke, as I recall. I don't think so. Uh, it's all just the male line. Well, yep. All the ministries began when they were 30 years old. And in Luke, yep. the first verse, first verse, they <laughs> talk about, uh, like in, in, in Luke, Jesus, the son of. Joseph, as they thought. Yeah. And then in Matthew, I believe it says something to the, the same yeah. point that he was not a blood relation of. Yeah, that's one thing. There's, they're both making it clear that he's not a blood relation to Joseph. And and so I I read this, and honestly, it, it, it troubles you a bit. Uh, for, for me personally, it troubles me a bit. Some of the observations on, okay, it's reverse order, it goes back further, all that. I think those are good observations, and there's reasons Luke did this versus the way Matthew did it. Um, the thing that, that worried me the most is if you actually trace back all the names, the names are different, right? The names are different. You just kind of look at, look at some of these names, and you'll find that as you start going through the ancestors, that just seems like it's a completely different family line. They intersect at different points, but it, it would appear that it's a completely different family line. 
And so a natural assumption, whenever people see stuff like this in the Bible, is to do what? Like, I mean, what, what would be your natural assumption? If you were to read this, then this, what would you assume? What's that? They doubt it. It's a book of lies, right? It's wrong, right? It's wrong, right? Somebody got it wrong. Either Matthew got it wrong or Luke got it wrong or both of them got it wrong. But they both can't be right. Yeah, and if this is wrong, what else is wrong, right? Well, I can't trust this. Obviously, I can't trust this. So what else can I not trust, right? So it's a, it's a very interesting problem, right? It's an interesting problem. And, and let me tell you, when you read the Bible, that's not going to be the only example you're going to come across where it appears like there's a contradiction in the text itself. Uh, I mean, it, it's it's one of many things in the Bible as you read through that you're going to go, well, that doesn't look right. So how do we wrestle with that? Um, I mean, this is, it might be, I want to do this, just so your small groups for a little bit. Uh, why don't you just talk for a minute at your small groups Two, two things in your in the question. First would be, what other examples in the Bible can you think of where it just seems like something's wrong? Seems like there's either there's either a contradiction with another part of the Bible, or there's a contradiction with what you understand about science or history or archaeology. You know, where where do you see contradictions? And then, you know, just talk about a group a little bit. How do you wrestle with that? How do you personally, right now, before we finish this lesson today, how do you wrestle with it? So let's talk about that for a little bit, and we'll come back. And if anyone doesn't talk about the seven days of creation or six days of creation, I've got a problem, right? So, so talk about it a little bit. All right, well, let's go ahead. Before, before I say something I regret on the Zoom recording, let's, uh, let's bring this back. You know, just, just real quick, you know, it's going to have a lot of time, but were there any major examples you guys talked about that you've always struggled with in the Bible that just seem to be contradictions or don't seem to jive with what you understand of science or history or archaeology? Exactly right. Yeah. So, so the uh, that, that gets a lot of people. The whole idea of hating the world, hating your if that 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 trips and there's a great explanation, but it trips people up if you don't understand the explanation. Yeah, a lot of people will take the gospel accounts and they'll say, well, hold on, it seems like Mark and Luke wrote about that a little bit differently, or uh, John and Mark said something a little bit different, and they'll they'll take an action. We'll talk about that here in just a second. Uh, but yeah, that can that can be troubling, you know, as you as you work through those things. Uh, yeah, we, we'll, we'll get into it. I promise. So I'll, I'll explain. So, um, and, but, but so, so you're going to deal with this. You're going to deal with, I mean, I mean, the, the creation story, how you understand the creation story. That can be really, really difficult at times. Um, some of the teachings in the Bible. I mean, you, you go and read the book of John, just an example. You'll read in one verse where, where it appears Jesus is contradicting himself, right? And, and you have to understand why. What, 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 why is it written that way? Why did he say it that way? But, you're going to wrestle with these things. And if you're not wrestling with these things, it means you're not reading your Bible, right? So if, if you've never come across an example where you go, what in the world? How is that? Is that right? And just make sure your gut feel raw. Just like if you're not having those feelings, you're not reading enough, right? So 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 read. Don't be afraid of it. Yeah. Yeah. And that's so. So I'm going to I've messed up all my order of my points here. But yes. So. So let me let me let me characterize this in, in, in as simply as I can on this because there's a wide range of understanding of the Bible. And so we'll start with a problem statement of we seem to have a contradiction, right? We seem to have a contradiction. And so people understand the Bible in different ways. And I'm gonna give you the two extremes right now. First extreme, kind of on this side, would be there is absolutely no error in the Bible. 
right? There's no error whatsoever. It is completely trustworthy. Everything should be interpreted completely literally, right? And nothing can be wrong whatsoever, right? That's probably the far extreme over here. And I'll tell you where I am here in just a second, right? You have this extreme over here that's going to say, the Bible is a deconstruction, I'll call it the deconstruction view, right? The Bible is nothing but a bunch of stories put together by men. There's some good application in there, but it was completely done by man. God is not involved in this, right? And, and everything can be explained with natural processes and reasons. And, and everything is based on an idea of what was going on in society and the culture and the author and the reader at the time. Over here, everything is the inspired word of God. So by definition, the word of God is God cannot be wrong, right? God himself cannot be wrong, right? Over here, you're, you're, you're really making it about man, interpreting something about God. And you've got all kinds of things in the middle of that, right? All kinds of things in the middle of that. But let me, let me say, since the Enlightenment, since postmodernism in any way, right, there's been this gradual shift from this edge of biblical interpretation to this side of biblical interpretation. And, and, and honestly, I, I think, you know, postmodern thought is going to do that. It's going to deconstruct anything uh, that we understand as authoritative, right? Because postmodern thought was really going to say that there cannot be any true authority, and you're going to base yourself on man's understanding. And so based on that foundational understanding, you're going to get further and further down into a deconstructionist view of everything, uh, including a biblical authority. And so we have so many people today, so many churches today, that actually teach a deconstruction, deconstructionist view of the Bible. Uh, they may say the Bible is the inspired word of God, but it has errors in it. Uh, or uh, the Bible is the inspired word of God, but you know, man came through and corrupted it at times and added all these things after the fact uh, that shouldn't actually be in the Bible. And so there's a fundamental problem with, with that view, right? If and I just want you to think about this because it's very tempting, right? It's very tempting to read Matthew 1 and Luke 3 and go, Luke made a mistake, right? Luke must have made a mistake. Well, Luke was a flawed human being, right? Luke was a sinful man just like the rest of us. Um, but if we understand the Bible to actually be the inspired word of God, right? Utilizing men and women all throughout history to, to, to write these different things and record these different things. But if we understand it to be the inspired word of God, can we actually accept the premise that Luke made a mistake? Right? We can't accept it. We cannot accept it. Because if we accept that premise, and then we, in our, in our wisdom, are going to say, well, if Luke was wrong, what else is wrong? Well, let me start, because I've got a long list of things that are taught in the Bible that I would like to be wrong to get me out of doing some things I don't want to be doing, right? Or allow me to start doing some things I do want to be doing, right? And so once we open up that gate, that Pandora's box of this is wrong, this is not wrong, uh, then, as opposed to the, the authority of God telling us what is true, what is good, what is evil, what is not, what is beautiful, we then allow flawed man to start making those decisions, some of you guys have been come, have come out of churches where they started teaching a deconstructionist view of the Bible, right? And what? And, and so let me ask you: for any of you who have come out of churches like that, and looking at you, what happened to those churches? What? They died. Why? And you know, why would a church that teaches a deconstructionist view of the Bible die? Okay, because apparently, because you end up deconstructing out 
anything that looks like real obedience, anything that looks like true faithfulness, then you just blend into the world, right? Because that becomes the easy thing to do. So there's lots of, of good research that has been done all throughout to help you understand different areas of how to interpret scripture and everything. Uh, but, but as far as our church and me personally, I'm going to be much closer over here on this side of inerrancy of the Bible can be without, without it cannot have any errors in it, than I'm going to be over here. Where, where I'm going to personally lean at times, though, is to say, I understand the Bible is completely without error. I will stand on that to the day I die. The Bible is without error, but I don't interpret everything in the Bible literally. Right? God used all types of different forms of literature, all types of different things, uh, cultural understanding, different things to help us understand the word. There's, there's allegory in here. He uses hyperbole. Uh, he uses poetry. He uses apocalyptic literature. God help us if we interpret Revelation literally, right? Uh, I mean, it's apocalyptic literature, which is symbolic in its nature. So we can, we can see God using these different constructs to explain things to us. Or we don't always have to, I don't think we always have to take a literal understanding. And I think the creation story is a great, great uh, example of that. Uh, a lot of people take a very literal view of the creation that we, the world was created in six days and on the seventh day he rested. And I think, I think, you know, I'm going to only use a quote that Terry normally says, let's let the Bible say what it wants to say and be what it wants to be, right? The creation story, the intent of that story is to tell us that God created the world and it was good, right? God created man and it was very good. Right. That's what we're understanding. I don't think the creation story, as it was told to us, was meant to be a science lesson. Right. I think God could have worked through whatever mechanism he chose to to, to put the world together in a process a day, maybe a thousand years or maybe a billion years. I don't know. I don't think God can. I don't think God is held to time the way we're held to time. God created time. Why does he have to deal with a linear construct, right? So, so, uh, so I just want to kind of pull these things out that we have different interpretations of different things, but, but here at this church, we will never teach that the Bible contains an error because once we do, the rest of it crumbles. And so take this example of Matthew 1 and Luke 3. Matthew 1 and Luke 3, there is a very good explanation for it. But our tendency is to say, because we've come from a society which is based on deconstructionist views, we all come from an enlightenment society, we tend to say, well, that can't be right. Let me tear it down, right? That can't be right. Instead of us leaning towards this understanding that God can't be wrong, so let me understand what God is telling me. Right. That's we have those two options. If we're standing on the fence, right, and we can lean towards God must be wrong, I must be right, or God must be right, I must be wrong, let me figure it out. Which way are we going to lean? And, and, and we have to be willing to lean this way, even if we never get to complete understanding. We have to trust that God will reveal it and, and help us understand. This passage in Matthew 1 and Luke 3 can be explained pretty clearly. Matthew's writing to a Jewish audience to help connect the Davidic line of royalty, right? Luke is a Greek doctor. So think about those two different people, and, they're, and, and Luke's writing to a guy named Theophilus. Right, not necessarily a Jewish guy. It didn't sound like a Jewish guy, right? So think about the different audiences you're writing to. They, you know, Matthew's trying to make sure they see the royal line. Luke's probably coming about it from a much more biological view. So an easy explanation for this, and there's been great research done on it, is is Matthew's connecting the actual royal line when the when when the crown would have been passed or the throne would have been passed which means at times there are people who don't have children. It goes over to a brother and then back down and over to a brother and then back down in the royal line. 
Whereas, whereas there's great research that shows that Luke is probably going at the physiological model. So actual father, actual son, actual father, actual son. And so you can trace that back and you can get to a very good explanation. So, oh, that's, that's reasonable. And it would make sense based on the audience they're doing it. But think about how great it is to say, okay, someone's done the work and the research to this, and they just have to be willing to lean to this side of the fence and say, well, maybe God's right and I'm wrong. So let me go do the work to figure it out, right? Versus I'm right, God must be wrong. And, and I, I want to challenge you guys with that. It just, just really take this out of the lesson. There's going to be so many things in the teachings of Christ and the teachings of our Bible where it's, you may not see an actual contradiction in the word or a contradiction in what you understand about history or anything like that, but you will have a contradiction in what you think is right or what you think is acceptable, right? That's where your contradiction is going to lie. Yeah, yeah. Exactly right. And they both, they both, OA is saying they both come back to David and they do agree and they agree at Abraham and they're just showing it in a different way. And so, so, but to think this through, if you guys ever, if you ever have a question about, well, how can this be right in the Bible or what's going on here? I'd encourage you to ask me, ask another pastor, ask some of the guys in here. We'll be able to get you an answer. Uh, and just because someone is really, really smart, who's a deconstructionist, who's saying this can't be true, doesn't mean there's not someone really, really smart on the other side who says it can be true, right? If you've never read this book, show you guys on Zoom, Can We Trust the Gospels by Peter Williams. Um, we had this guy come and speak at Crossings a few years ago. Uh, he's a PhD from Cambridge. Fantastic book, a very easy read that he drills down into some incredible depth about why you can trust the Gospels. And it's a really, really good book. So can we trust the Gospels by Peter Williams? But, but where it's going to come at you more and more often is in the actual way you live your life. You've been conditioned based on all kinds of different things to think certain things are good, certain things are not. I'm supposed to do this. I'm not supposed to do this. And then you're going to read a text or you're going to listen to a lesson from me or from Marty or from Terry or Gene or whoever, right? That's going to challenge something you think right? You think is true. And at that moment, what I have to ask all of you to do is be willing to say, am I going to sit there and reject that teaching because it contradicts with something I believe is right? Or am I going to say, okay, this was a faithful lesson, right? This is coming from the word of God. Let me try to understand what God is doing with this. And if I need to change, if I need to, to quit, or if I need to let go of something I believe for full, full wealth, right? Let me lean into what God's actually saying about we had another guy in the Bible, and I'll close on this. We had another guy in the Bible that wrestled with this, right? This guy was a good guy. He was a good man who had done everything right, right? He had done everything right. His name was Job, right? Job did everything right. And then something horrible happened to him, and it challenged what he understood about God and what he understood about himself. And Job was on that fence, right? And he, and he could not understand why bad things had happened to him because he had done everything right. And he could have either leaned over here and said, God, just help me understand this. I trust you completely. Or he said, God, you're wrong, right? Something must be wrong with you, God, because I've done everything right. And Job leaned over here, right? He, he really challenged God to a certain extent. And then God responded to him, right? And God responded lovingly to him. But, but he had leaned over here, and he was saying, I know what I've done is right, and I know what's happened to me is wrong, so God, you must be in error, right? And so God responded to him, 
And so what I try to do as an exercise is anytime, anytime I've gotten myself into a situation where I believe that my way is right and God must be wrong, there must be something there, I go and I read Job and I ask myself these questions. So I just want you to think about this way. If you're asking yourself the question, God, there's no way in the world your story of creation can be right. Turn to Job 38 and just let, let God answer your question, right? So I, I kind of have this mock conversation with God and myself all the time. So if you turn to Job 38 real quick, uh, this is what I do. So, all right, God, how, how can this be right? This can't be right. Your creation story cannot be right. Then I read Job 38 verse 4. Uh, Blake, were, were you there when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me. Tell me if you have understanding. Were, were you there when, when I determined its measurement? Surely you know. Okay, thanks, God. And then I'll get into another time. It's like, uh, well, well, God, this can't be right. You tell me that, you know, I, I, I shouldn't lust after other women. That's impossible. Have you seen TV? Right? I mean, I, I, I can't do that. I get stuff on my phone all the time. There's no way a man today cannot lust. Uh, your teaching must be wrong, God, uh, because this is just too hard. And then he goes, oh, I guess you were there whenever the morning stars sang together with glory and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Uh, or you were there when I commanded the morning since the days began and caused the dawn to know its place. I guess you were there, Blake, whenever I put all this together and you know better than me, right? You must know better than me. And I, that's where we have to get ourselves into the situations. We don't know better than God. We don't know better than God. Let's lean to this side of the fence. God in his infinite wisdom was powerful enough to tell us what we needed to know about him, tell us what we need to know about his word, uh, tell us what we needed to just understand. And there might be things we don't understand or we, we think we have to challenge, but I guarantee you God will reveal the answer to us as we need to. We just need to trust that he's going to be right whenever we think that he must be wrong because we're right. So you may have, I just want you to leave this, you're going to have an example, I suspect, this week where this application is going to come up. It'll come up. And, and I just want you to be willing to accept the fact that you can be wrong. God's right. Yeah, so the question is, which version do I use? And I use the right one. I use the good one. I use, I use the version of the Bible that would make sure that I didn't get made fun of by cold fakes when I started researching and studying. So, no, I, I, I'll say for me personally, I study and teach out of the ESV. Uh, we, we traditionally preach in the, at crossings out of the NIV because most people have the NIV. Uh, the NIV is just not as literal of a translation. So for a Bible study like this, the ESV or the NASB is probably a better translation for this kind of study. But for, for more sermons, the NIV is a great translation for that. But I, but I would say, you know, that you're going to come across it all the time. Well, you can't trust the translations because they just translate upon translate upon translate it. So it can't be right. Well, well, geez, where's the academic rigor in that? Right? I mean, that's a horrible argument uh, because all the translations go back to the original text. It just takes about this much research to, to, to dispute that. And I want you to be ready for that. You're going to have arguments, different things come up, um, and, and there's always a good answer for it. Good people have done the right research on this. But more importantly, you will be challenged by your own understanding of things. Right? Lean towards God. Yes, yeah. I just got to change your side. Oh, I'm not bad. Well, on, on, Zoom, the, on Zoom, it's there right. So it, it's, uh, you know, the, the best verse on this, like I said, is, so in Romans, there's this passage in Romans that says, uh, those people were, they were claiming to be wise and they became fools, right? They, they were claiming to be wise and they became fools. You got a lot of people today who've gone down the deconstructionist path 
who believe they've discovered something incredible. They're claiming to be wise. And they're actually fools because they're not trusting in God's word. And so I, I, I hope you guys understand for me, I'm not a naive person. Uh, I do a lot of uh, rigorous research and, and I'm a skeptic by nature. Um, and I fully believe in the inerrancy of the word of God. I do not believe there's any error in this book and I'll stand behind that. Uh, and please be on guard when someone teaches you otherwise, right? It can crack your faith. Yeah, I mean, you think about, so to Charlie's point for you guys on Zoom, the resurrection itself is a crazy story. It's a crazy story. A man came back to life. God came down in flesh. God allowed himself to be crucified on a cross. No other religion would have their deity actually subject themselves to that, right? So it's a crazy, crazy story, right? But there were eyewitnesses. There are facts. Marty talked about Lee Strobel's book, Case of Christ. Great book. This is a great book, right? This actually happened. I tr truly believe it. Yes, sir. We'll give it. If two people agree, one of them is unnecessary. Yeah. <laughs> 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 yeah. That's a good point. Well, let me, uh, some people got to leave. I'll pray that we can keep talking for everyone who wants to. Let me pray and get out That's a good point. Uh, Father, I thank you for this group again. I thank you for your word. Uh, we trust you. We trust you, Lord. And uh, this is, you know, there's going to be times we don't understand. I'm not going to be able to sit here and explain the Trinity in detail to every man here today. I don't think we ever will. Um, there's things in your word we don't completely get, but you've given us what we need. And you've revealed yourself. And you are without error. And, and we can trust in that. I just ask that you to be with each man here, that they can lean into you in those times that they doubt, in those times that they uh, want to go their own way, uh, that, that they, they would trust you, not just trust that what you said is right, but trust that they can put the hope of their joy and their peace and their comfort in you, uh, that obeying you is better than not obeying you, right? That not only you're right, but, but you're also loving and good, and you want the best for us. And so I ask you to be with these guys, uh, to strengthen their faith, increase their resolve, make them better servants, sanctify us. We thank you so much. May you be with each man in here, keep them healthy and safe, and, and uh, have the great attitude. In Jesus' name, amen.